Good morning, everyone. Thank you for coming to support each other in practice. It's not easy to practice alone. We definitely need the support of others, encouragement of others. So by you being here, you are supporting other people in their practice. People are very curious about the word enlightenment. We use the word enlightenment or awakening uh, in talking about our aspiration or our vows for practice. We don't talk much about enlightenment or awakening, that is, unpacking it or unfolding it or talking about what it's composed of in Zen. And the reason is we don't want to plant preconceived notions in people's minds because those preconceived notions tend to stand right in the way of what needs to unfold, what is already there, and will naturally unfold if we get completely out of the way. The word completely is um, a lot of work. <laughs> so at, uh, when, when Hogan and I first started practicing Zen, decades and decades ago, there were only two books about Zen practice. <clears throat> there were Three Pillars of Zen, and there was Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind by Suzuki Roshi. And this book is a, a collection of teachings by Philip Kaplow and his teachers, Yatsutani Roshi, um, and Harada, Sogaku Harada Roshi, translated and then compiled by Philip Kaplow. So this this was one of the first Zen centers in the U.S., uh, the Zen center in Rochester, where Hogan studied with Kaplow Roshi. And this was a book, these, because there are only two books, we just read them over and over and over again, uh, trying to get hints about how to practice or inspiration for practice. People often ask me, should I read when I'm undertaking Zen practice? And I say, read books that inspire you to sit down on the cushion. That's what you should read. And later, after you've had some accumulated experience on the cushion in meditation and long retreats and so on, then reading can be helpful because you can say, oh, yes, I understand exactly because I had the experience. I, under- I understand what this person is talking about. But this thing I don't understand, so that's my aspiration or a little carrot, uh, something I'd like to uh, aspire to. So uh, we read this over and over again, and we were instructed do not read the chapters on people's actual enlightenment experiences. So there's a collection in this book, I probably shouldn't tell you if you haven't read it, a collection of enlightenment experiences. And every old book uh, in libraries of Three Pillars of Zen, if you put it down, it will automatically open to people's enlightenment experiences because that's what everybody read. That's what we were interested in. What was this going to be like? Where was this journey going to end? We thought, oh, it's going to be an end, a glorious end. So we actually did a skit once at the Zen Center where we had people waiting in line for Sanzen uh, in the skit, and the bell would ring, and then you could, you, then the, you could read the person's mind. The, an announcer would speak what was in the person's mind who was waiting at the bell. So this was, this was one. So the person's waiting at the bell for uh, to go in and see the teacher, and then, and then the person's in the person's mind it says, oh, "I really want to get enlightened. I really want to get enlightened. I want I want the enlightenment experience of PK 
uh, an American ex-businessman. <laughs> Hawk-like, the Roshi scrutinized me as I entered his room, walked toward him, prostrated myself, and sat before him with my mind alert and exhilarated. The universe is one, he began, each word tearing into my mind like a bullet. The moon of truth. All at once, the Roshi, the room, every single thing disappeared in a dazzling stream of illumination, and I felt myself bathed in a delicious, unspeakable delight. For a fleeting eternity, I was alone. I alone was. Then the Roshi swam into view. Our eyes met and flowed into each other, and we burst out laughing. I have it. I know it. There is nothing, absolutely nothing. I am everything, and everything is nothing. I exclaimed more to myself than to the Roshi, and got up and walked out. <laughs> so we had examples like that that gave us an idea of, okay, this is what I'm aiming for, unspeakable delight. And thumbing my nose at the Roshi as I walk out. So uh, that becomes an obstacle because then you've got an idea of what it's supposed to be like and you're striving towards making it like that. And of course, that puts the self and the self's desire to create something right smack in the way when really what we need to do is find ways to dissolve this very fixed sense of self. Um, I think it's actually time that we talk more about enlightenment. So I gave some talks up in Washington on Whidbey Island and in Seattle about enlightenment. And I'd like to continue that today. So the first question when I gave the talks up in um, Washington, first question, or maybe five minutes into the talk, question, yes. Are you enlightened? I, I need to know if you're enlightened. And the answer is no, I'm not enlightened. And I actually don't know anybody who is fully enlightened. I know people who are well ahead of me on the path, very inspirational. The Dalai Lama is an example. Radha Roshi is an example, and so on. But there's no one that I actually know of who's enlightened now. There could be enlightened people hiding out there that I don't know, that haven't met, or that I've met and passed over, because one of the stages of enlightenment is to go back into the marketplace. Uh, sometimes you say, like a fool, like an idiot, um, because any demonstration of, oh, I'm an enlightened person, or talking about it, that, you know, if somebody says, I'm enlightened, run as fast as you can away. Uh, so any demonstration wouldn't be enlightened behavior. Um, it becomes, you know, more like this. How does this function, what I just read in daily life? So that's the issue, is how does that uh, insight, that opening, function in daily life to benefit other people, to benefit ourselves and benefit other people? So how do I know that I'm not enlightened? Well, I get irritated. But, you know, come to think of it, so did the Buddha. There was a point at which uh, some of his disciples were arguing over something quite trivial. It came out of a mistake somebody made with the etiquette in a bathroom. And then there are two factions formed. You can form factions over anything, right? And we're arguing with each other. And the Buddha tried to get them to resolve the argument several times, and they wouldn't do it. So finally, he just said, so long, and he walked off into the woods and hung out with the elephants for a while. Um, and he used to sometimes say, you, you stupid person, if he felt like somebody was really being very stubborn and 
holding on to their delusions and their, and their suffering. So he could get irritated. Um, I can detect irritation now at much more subtle levels of irritation before it grows into full-blown anger. And I can change paths from my mind stream to something more beneficial. So that's helpful. I can't see past lives, which is one of the Buddha's discoveries at his enlightenment, is that he could see all of his past lives and see other people's past lives. I can't do that. I can't embrace mind with mind, which is one of the attributes uh, of the Buddha, of the enlightened Buddha, that he was able to expand his mind and embrace another person's mind and see clearly into their mind state and to know uh, whether to talk to speak to them or not. Sometimes he didn't. He didn't feel it would be beneficial. He wouldn't answer their questions. Or if to speak to them, what to say and when to say it. Um, definitely, I'm the, the more I know myself and my own mind states better, the better I am at reading other people's states of mind. So that's definitely changed through practice. Sometimes people are upset that they uh, can't work on koans or don't find koans a useful way of practicing because there's um, a belief in Zen practice, in Rinzai Zen practice, one part of Zen practice, that you have to be working on a koan. You have to work on mu. You have to have a breakthrough on mu. Then you go through the other koans. Then you can get enlightened. And so people get upset. Oh, I'm not able to work on koans, or my teacher doesn't teach koans, or I'm in the Soto Zen sect and they don't teach koans. But I always say to people, well, the Buddha didn't work on the koan curriculum. The curriculum of hundreds of koans was a system that came about in China centuries after the Buddha lived. And the Buddha didn't, Buddha became enlightened without the koan system as we know it. So that's what I often say to people. There is a, a corollary, a however, to that, which is the Buddha had the best kind of koan. He had a personal koan. So that's the very best kind of koan. If people can come forward with their heart's burning question, their deepest life question. So for example, in one retreat, a, a Christian woman came to me and said, I don't I don't think I belong here because I'm a Christian. And I said, well, what's your deepest question? And she said, well, why does, why does God allow suffering in the world? That is a fantastic koan. If God exists and God has power in the world, why does God allow suffering, so much suffering in the world? So that's what she worked on. So everybody has a deep koan. And of course, that may change according to your age and life circumstance. So if someone dies, the koan may become what happens after death. A very burning question, which can help you dig very deep, very deep. So the Buddha had this had a personal koan, and the, this koan, this question, was so intense that it forced him from inside to leave the palace and leave his wife and his young son, whom he knew would be cared for, in a communal type setting. But this question was so intense and so burning that it forced him to leave home because he felt, of what benefit can I be to my wife, my child, my subjects, if I am a ruler, if I don't know how to end their suffering? I have to know that first before I can decide what to do. 
in life. So the question that uh, was so intense, his personal koan, was the source of suffering. Because he felt if he knew the source of suffering, if he could see the source of human suffering, then logically there, he could find a cure. He could find a remedy. Uh, just like you know, we try to find the, in medicine, uh, it always helps me to pick up the Buddhist framework and move it to medicine. Sometimes it clarifies things for me. So for example, fibromyalgia, which is a very um, difficult disease that people have. And for a long time, medicine didn't believe it was a disorder, but it is. But we don't know the cause. So we know that it's, it makes people suffer, but we don't know the cause. So where there's an intense effort to find the cause. And periodically, articles come out, oh, they found this virus, and maybe it's this, and so on. But we haven't found the cause. Once we found the cause, then we can work on the cure. So the Buddha had that exact same question. There's a disease, a human universal disease, which we call suffering. And if he could find the cause of it, then he would know how to help people find their own way out of suffering, their own cure. So we're all aware that um, when the Buddha became enlightened, he declared the Four Noble Truths. That was his formula of his koan, his personal koan, and the cure, the source and the cure. So first noble truth is to live as a human being, is to experience suffering, to experience in the mildest form unsatisfactoriness. You know, that feeling you get when you've, let's say you had a nice Thanksgiving dinner, but deep in your being you feel like that wasn't ultimately satisfying. I really want something that's ultimately satisfying. Why wasn't that ultimately satisfying? Why do I feel this vague sense of discontent, distress? Mm-hmm. So there's a mild form, and then there's an intense form, of course, where people can be, touch- be tortured by self-recrimination, shame, inner critic, and, and want to kill themselves, which is a temporary release, but not a permanent release from intense suffering. So the first noble truth was to live as a human being is to experience unsatisfactoriness, inherent unsatisfactoriness, let's say, in material objects. We've all experienced that where you have intense desire. I must have this latest electronic device. I must have a new car. And there's the search, and there's the gratification of the search and the anticipation, and then you get it, and in three weeks, it's like, oh, okay, so I got it, so what? It's nice, but it didn't. It isn't ultimately satisfying. So suffering, unsatisfactoriness, dissatisfactoriness, and all the way to intense life-ending suffering. And then the source, he said, is clinging. The source is holding on to what we want or the opposite of that, pushing away what we don't want. They're the same. They're just the reverse form. And then the cure is the path. There is an end to suffering. And the path of practice, specifically in his, in his first formulation, the Noble Eightfold Path, practicing that. So people often regard Buddhism as a pessimistic religion because the tenet is to live as a human being is to suffer. So therefore, I will escape by nasal gazing, you know, just sit there and gaze at my navel and, navel and exhort and ignore the rest of the world. No, 
That is not what Buddhism is about at all. It's not pessimistic because once you find the source of suffering, then you're on the path to the cure, and the path is to practice. So we're offered, it's, it's the most compassionate, actually, um, form of religion, in a way. It doesn't condemn you to um, you know, uh, pre-existing sin, original sin. It doesn't even use the word sin. It uses unwholesome or unskillful for actions that we do that have some problems within them. So the, the, we're offered this practice, we're offered the way out of suffering. But then, if we take that on, then we take on a big thing, which is practice. So the Buddha talked about different forms of suffering. The, the Buddha was great in those, in those eras because uh, things were passed on orally. There, there was no written Pali, the, language that, the primary language he spoke in. It was not written down, so everything was transmitted for several hundred years uh, by, by oral, by memorization. And it was helpful in memorization to have lists. So if you were going to memorize what the Buddha said and then tell it to somebody else, the lists help. So the Buddha listed different kinds of suffering. And the first is plain, is pain, is physical pain. The plain truth of to have a human body is to, have, to experience physical pain. There's no escape from it. Everyone has the pain of, like right now, we have a cold going through the monastery. So the, the pain of, of your body not feeling well or of coughing when you want to be silent in the zendo. So that we start out life with the pain of childbirth, inevitable pain of childbirth. And then sickness, like the colds that people are experiencing now or the flu. Or in my case, my knees are giving out, so... I couldn't do the ceremony this morning because I just can't do that many vows. And with old age, I often say, they, when I go to the doctor, they say, uh, what level of pain are you experiencing right now from zero to 10? And I say, which part of my body do you want me to rate? <laughs> Let's see, my low back, meh, it's fine, of zero. My right index finger, mm, four, five, um, you know. You can just like inventory your body as you get older, and there are various parts that hurt and various parts that don't. And then you add a new pain, a new pain comes as you get older. This is like advanced warning for younger people. A new pain comes, and you hope it'll go away. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. If it doesn't, then you just put it in the closet of pains, and you just close the door, and you kind of just accept it. Okay, that's part of the package. And then a new one comes, and you go, oh, my gosh, a new pain, oh, my gosh. And then you get used to that one, and you put it in the closet, and so on. So besides the universality of physical pain, so that's the first type of, of suffering that the Buddha mentioned, the universality of physical pain. But then the Buddha said suffering is having what we don't want, like physical pain, right? So there's the pain, and then there's, I don't want this. That's different. So we're looking at the difference between pain and suffering. So pain and I don't want this. That's where suffering begins. So having what we don't want is the source of suffering and not having what we do want. Oh, I would like to have a younger body, but I don't. Or I would love to have a romantic relationship, but I don't. So that's a fact, but we can add to that suffering. Therefore, that means that I am this way, 
this will never happen, blah, blah, blah. So not having what we do want. Or, so you find your soulmate, you get married, and after three years, you have what you don't want. Right? (laughs) You know, that's the way it works. (laughs) Because you're two human beings, and you inevitably clash. So whatever we, wherever we look in life, oh, I want my ideal job. You get the job, you're really happy for a while, and then there's problems with the job. It's inevitable. And then, then there's parts of the job that aren't what you want. So having what you don't want, not having what you do want, and then even if we have what we want, anxiety about losing it. The Buddha listed that as another source of suffering. So, okay, we found our soulmate, and we're so happy, but then we think, Oh, look Look at how he looked at that woman. Oh, no, what if I lose him? All made out of imagination, right? Or what when he dies? What if he dies first? Oh, what will I do? I'll be so sad. Do I want another partner? I don't think so. But I, then you start imagining, oh, shall I date again? No, that's fine. I'm going to go to bars. I'm not going to go to bars to find somebody else. So the mind just goes, blah, 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 and that's just piles of suffering added on. I love this person, right? <laughs> I love this person. I feel connected to this person. Whatever love means, sometimes Hogan and I say, I love you, whatever that means. <laughs> I don't know what it means. This is complicated, huh? So even if we have what we want, we're anxious about losing it. So that's the source of suffering. And if we have what we don't want, our anxiety is that it won't go away, that it'll get worse, this thing that we don't want. Basically, it's fear about impermanence, that things are going to change. We know that. We know that's a truth. Impermanence is a truth. But we haven't completely accepted it, so we fight against it, and that causes suffering. So those are some examples of the list the Buddha gave for sources of suffering. Having what we want, isn't that interesting? Having what we want can be a source of suffering. So I'm going to give you a couple of examples, then I'm going to ask you for examples of how you've seen that happen with your mind. So I'm going to give you an example related to the truth of physical pain and how the mind can add suffering on top of the fact of pain. So my knees are giving out, and I can't climb stairs well. So then we used to often, every couple of years, we would go to ape caves which I love going to ape caves because we can turn off the lights and walk in the darkness and see if you can sense where the walls are and it's cool and it's dripping in there and I used to do a lot of caving when I was young which is partly how I ruined my knees Um, but now I can't go to ape caves because I can't climb up over the boulders and I can't bow many times so I can't do the Kashiti Garba ceremony and I can't get up easily from the floor if I've been sitting for a while. So there are lots of things that I want to do that I now can't do. So I'm clinging. If I cling to that, oh, how can I get that back? Or I'm really sad that there are so many things that I can't do. Then that's suffering. So there's the fact of I can't do it. And then there's the suffering that I add on top of that, the clinging, the distress, which is based in past thinking, right? Oh, I could do these things in the past. That was me. And I should still be me, the same me that I was when I was in college, right? That's all based on on past thinking. Or I can be irritated at my knees. That doesn't help because the negativity doesn't promote good health in anything. Healing or doesn't promote the life, 
for, so I could be irritated or angry at my knees, but that lessens the chance that they're going to get better. Or I can imagine how worse they're going to get and then what I'll have to give up as a result. So I could, I could think about, oh, maybe I'll end up with a cane on a walker, a wheelchair, or bedridden, or maybe, you know, my legs will get so bad, you'll have to amputate them. They mind you just go wild thinking about future consequences of pain in your knees. Based on future thinking. I love this phrase from one of our English students, that the mind is a disaster monger. It sells disasters. So you can go from, I'm having difficulty getting up from a kneeling position to my legs are amputated and I'm in a wheelchair permanently. In a second, in an instant, that's what the mind uh, heads for. Or I can accept, so I can either create suffering out of the fact that my knees aren't as limber and as discomfort-free as they used to be. So I I can create by comparing to the past suffering, I can create by futuring by going into the future and being anxious about the future, I can create a lot of suffering for myself and people around me. Or I can accept, yes, there are some strong sensations in my knees and there are things that I can't do that I used to do. And I can send loving kindness to my knees and I can be practical and go see what medicine can offer. But then, so then the surgeon says, oh, you can, you know, I can fix your knees with surgery. But we only do one at a time because if it doesn't work, we don't want to do two knees. So then what does the mind do with that? Oh my gosh, that means maybe it won't work on my one knee. Maybe I'll be worse off. So the mind comes back in and creates suffering out of this potential offering of surgery, which might improve the situation. But it might not. It might make it worse. What if it doesn't work? What if I'm worse? Then the mind just goes off into suffering again. So that's an example of suffering, so pain, physical sensation, pain. I don't even like the word pain. It's so loaded. Strong physical sensations and inability to do something I used to do. Those are facts, right? And then I can create suffering. My mind can create suffering. So this is where our practice says there's a place where you can interrupt that if the mind is trained. So another example. This is related to suffering uh, created out of sound. So that's another physical sensation, sound, right? This morning, when it was still dark, we were sitting here very peacefully in the zendo, you know, breathing in the peace of the room, we heard gunshots. So we heard gunshots over there in the forest, and we heard gunshots several properties away that way. And then the mind goes, guns, danger, and then the mind goes, oh, hunting season. Then the mind goes, oh no, the deer that used to come and graze peacefully in our flower garden. Oh, there's some people out there. Hope they don't walk into the forest. That's true. There's some people walking around out there. (laughs) Um, Oh, those, the mother and her yearling and her fawn, and you can see how the mind starts turning towards suffering. Oh, poor deer. I hate hunters. I hate guns. Why do people have to hunt? I hate carnivores. Then, but then we had this big discussion at the table, breakfast table, about, well, on the other hand, there are too many deer in many areas, and so it's helpful to keep the deer population down. And we don't have Lyme disease yet, but if there are too many deer, we might have Lyme disease like they have on the East Coast, and that's a suffering. 
So then we talked about encouraging wolves, and there used to be no wolves in Oregon. Now I think there's a pack of about 27. But the, the um, farmers, the cattlemen, are complaining because the wolves now that have come back are eating the cattle. And, that, and then we talked about there's too many people um, <laughs> in the world. Uh, and then there's too many, there's, people are poor, and how come we can't allocate our resources so that people don't have to be poor? And people in need of food, that poor people need food. And so that's a way to supply yourself with food, is to hunt. And in this area, that's been generations of people who hunted for food and stocked a freezer with elk meat or deer meat, and that's how they fed their family, large families. We had one family who came here when we moved in that said they had 13 children and they all came to this school. How do you feed 13 children if you're not well off? You have deer. You have a garden, a big garden, and then in the winter when the only thing the garden produces is kale and cabbage, then you have deer. <laughs> so that's an example of how the mind can just create a whole bunch of suffering and distress, complications, out of a sound. I'll give you another example. This is my favorite example. I haven't done it for a while. So listen to these sounds and see the effect it has on you. Dupec. Pierre Dolek. Yeshte Taki Hui. Any reaction? Besides that you heard sound? Any reaction? You might have just cast a spell. <laughs> no, I just cursed at you in Polish. Right? But you had no reaction because it was just a sound. But if I had cursed at you in English, which I won't do, but do pick is like a-hole and so on. Your tone of voice, though, is harsh. Mm-hmm, it's harsh. So the mind's a little bit alert to that, to the tone of voice. But how is it that we have imbued magically certain words in the English language with the ability to get us to react and, be, and become angry? Isn't that interesting? I just think that's fascinating. We have taken certain words which have, they're no different than other words. They have, they're spelled with vowels and consonants. And we've imbued them with the ability to make us really upset. And, or to make somebody else upset if we say them. That's just amazing to me that we've done that. So that's another example of how we can add a lot of suffering. You can beat somebody up if they call you things like that. Right? Then you get put in jail. Then a lot of suffering can happen out of that, out of a sound depending on what the mind does. So we have physical sensations, and then we have suffering that's added to it by the mind, by the mind. And we have simple facts, like there are more wolves, so like, and I'm, or there, maybe the deer are going to be killed. And so we have simple facts that the mind can turn over, or concern, let's say I'm concerned about something nationally or internationally. But then on top of that, we add suffering. So physical and mental phenomenon we can create, turn into a, a big package of suffering. OK, so now I would like you to give me some examples of how you've watched your mind turn something simple into suffering, either physical sensations or the news or 
mistake about somebody, mistaken thoughts about somebody. Right? <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> so you went from overeating at Thanksgiving. No. No? <laughs> this is before dinner? No, I just, I don't know what happened. <laughs> oh, I think maybe I know. Since there are the physical facts of if, if the stomach is really full, then acid will, as you get older, sorry, <laughs> will reflux up into your esophagus and cause acid reflux. Uh, so that's the beautiful example of sensations, uncomfortable sensations uh, in the body, and then death, <laughs> in, like that. <laughs> yeah, other example? Live, live edge. Okay. Shanae's gone in the evenings now, so I often use that time to practice music out at Liberation Hall when I get it. Yeah. Um, last night I was leaving the cafeteria, but the mop bucket was still there, so I put the mop bucket away, left the cafeteria, red truck was still there, <laughs> so I put the red truck away, chainsaw and loppers were still in the truck bed. Put them away. Inside. All the straps and cardboard box was still in the truck. So this is from bringing our Christmas tree in. Inside yeah. and then made it out to Liberation Hall and the Han was in nine minutes. <laughs> so so what did you do? picked up the guitar and I played for nine minutes, but um, the cleanest I'm able to make that suffering is an experience of grief. Mm. So I feel a sadness. A loss. In my heart, a loss. Uh huh. And what did you lose? Well, go ahead. If I were to put words to it, I would say um, I'm not able to live the life that I would like to live. Mm -hmm. The words of that sadness. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the mind has an idea of the life you'd like to live. And in this particular case, it was an idea of so many minutes to practice guitar. Is that right? It's. wanting to honor, yes, 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 it's mm -hmm. wanting to honor like a relationship with, with music, and, mm -hmm. th and that's the way I, I want to express it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we've all had that experience that he's describing, right? Where you have an expectation, this is how my day is going to go, or my evening, or the next hour is going to go, and then it's interrupted. Things change. People come forward, they have needs. You're the person to take care of them, or take care of inanimate objects in this case. And then you discover, whoa, my expectation about how my evening was going to go is shattered. So we can create suffering out of that, right? This is unfair. This is not, I don't, I don't want to live at the monastery anymore. People have too many demands. Why don't people put things away? Why don't people do what they're supposed to do? Uh, I want to yell at somebody. Well, I can't yell at them, so I'll have to do a polite reminder at work circle tomorrow about please put... <laughs> right. 
So you can see how the mind can create out of the simple fact that there were things to do and something that the mind had, it's like, put aside as a gift to myself in the future, right? I'm going to have this little gift for myself in the future of this many minutes to play guitar. And then the gift gets smaller or taken away. And that can be very disappointing. So how do we work with that? This is, this is exactly the issue of our practice. How do we not turn it into resentment and, and suffering? But just say, this, is, this, is, this was my life. This is my experience. This is what happened. You can decide to be irresponsible, of course, if you want to. Just leave the bucket there and leave the truck there. I mean, that's always a choice. But there's something inside of us that says, no, that's not my choice. But then we do the choice, the choices we made, and then we, say, then we get resentful about it. <laughs> it's so funny. We're so funny. <laughs> right? Oh, I chose to put the bucket away. Now I'm resentful that I had to put the bucket away. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Who put the bucket away? But that's exactly, that's a great example of how we, how we always are and create our own suffering. Any other example? Oh, we got more hands now. <laughs> Let's see. Yeah, Christy. I wanted to follow oh. one. Okay, you do, Kathy. Christy can talk anytime she wants to hear you talk. That um, following what he said and walking across and finding those things, presumably someone else's job to do it because it was resentment, that he chose to do what he thought someone else's job was, instead of, uh, you used the word irresponsible, mm-hmm. that he would judge himself or fear the judgment of other people mm-hmm. than himself, mm-hmm. that he was irresponsible. Mm-hmm. So he has a choice of letting someone else <coughs> suffer the consequences of their choices, if mm-hmm. I mean, left all that stuff in the truck, mm-hmm. and the potential for people to judge him as irresponsible, and he wants to maintain other people's perception of him as a responsible person. Or his own perception. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that he doesn't want to, yeah. Um, and that seems to lead right back to the, the self. This is what I want to be, and I, I want to protect that, and I want everyone to agree mm-hmm. with it, too. Mm-hmm. So can you give an example from your own life? Because yeah. we don't know exactly how he felt, right? Okay. Yeah. So my grandson is living with me right now. He comes in the kitchen, and he's on the table waiting for his muffin. And there's, I have a glass table. He has a china bowl. Ping! I hear it. Mm. Oh, God. That was loud. Ping, ping. <laughs> All right, now, that's going to wait. Another, so that's great. Hold it right there. So you had one whole stream of suffering that you yeah. foresaw, and now you're entering another one. Yeah. I shouldn't be irritated. That's right. another stream. Yeah, I shouldn't be like this. Right. Yeah, so then keep going. That's great. What kind of relationship am I creating with them 
Right. So that again is the idea of I should be a certain way, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Now, how am I going to get rid of them? (laughs) I don't really want to get rid of them because I was so excited to have them move in and spend more time with my grandson. (laughs) And there goes. That's great. That's great. So you, what's great about it is that you examined all these the steps along the path to suffering. You saw how the sound ping created all this suffering, right? Yes. Yeah, all these chains of suffering. So let's go back to the sound ping. What could you do about the sound ping? Well, my first thought is just to be in a, just to hear it. Mm-hmm. You could and do that. Without any of the the embroidery the mind puts on it, and yeah. Take it in a practical way. Practical. Well, well, how likely is it that she hears this? Probably not. Uh huh. Uh huh. If she hears it, how likely is it? And I'm trying to protect her uh-huh. sleep. Uh huh. Sleep. Uh huh. So let's even go back to a simpler practical solution. How about a placemat? Right? So this is what happens when our mind just goes, or a plastic dish, right? Our mind just goes, and and we, we then, it's so confusing, we can't see a simple solution. Just change the sound. Yeah. So I, I visited some, when I was up in Whidbey Island, I visited some people who had remodeled their kitchen. It's exquisite, just the most gorgeous kitchen. And they put in the middle of it a table of glass. It is so beautiful. It's that thick. It's like this big piece of ice in the middle of their kitchen. And then they but then they had to have taller stools, you know, to sit at this table. <laughs> and then it turned out the legs were too long because then they had to sink them into the tiles because it was anyway, you know, it, it's beautiful, but there was a lot of little tales of suffering about it. But the big tale of suffering is they're very afraid if anybody puts anything down on it abruptly, the whole thing will shatter and it costs thousands of dollars. <laughs> it is gorgeous, but it's like a museum piece. So, you know, then you put a tablecloth on it or a placement on it. That's how I thought of that idea, because of them. So do you, do you see how we create our own suffering? It's really, really important to know that. So I know you all have other examples, but I need to finish. We can go to go to lunch. So we have to understand that the mind takes facts or sensations, physical sensations like the sound, or like time, oh, I had anticipated this much time and I had this much time, and turns, can turn it into suffering. So we need to know how to extract the mind from the suffering that it adds to these simple body sensations to simple sounds. How do you do it? That's what our practice is about. Our practice is about recognizing the suffering that we've added to either a thought or a concept or an observation or physical sensations. I mean, in the way, the the mind's thoughts are just physical sensations, right? We give them a ton of weight, but they're really just a sense of movement and sound. And sometimes there's a visual component to some thoughts. 
but they are really just physical sensations. Thoughts. If you can, if you can step back them and realize, oh, that was a physical sensation, and it had this sense of movement and this maybe sense of weight, and maybe this visual aspect to it and this these sounds. It can be very helpful. So the mind takes physical sensations and then the collection of physical sensations we call thoughts and turns them into suffering. So first we recognize when that happens. And then when we recognize it, we have the ability to change it. We have the freedom to change it. Then ultimately, when the mind is not thinking all the time, so this is part two, which is the ability to turn the mind off, the ability to rest the mind, to rest in what we call natural mind, just awareness mind. And out of awareness mind, we have tons of choice. Tons of choices. As soon as the mind gets tangled up in thoughts, the choices narrow. And then emotions get involved. But when we step back into awareness, we realize, oh, I've actually got a lot of choices here. And then we can start to flow with things as they occur. And you've all had experiences of flow. You've all had experiences of when something happened which could have called you, caused you distress, but didn't because you just flowed right into it and did exactly what was appropriate. Everybody's had some experience like that, where you kind of surprise yourself and go, whoa, who did that? Oh, that was me. Oh. And if you, if you look back at it, is you were not thinking, you're just, a, you're just acting. Sometimes it's in emergencies. You know, you, there's always stories about uh, a car r- runs over a child, and a mom just runs out and lifts up the car, and then afterwards it's like impossible. That's an example of just, just uh, responding to the situation perfectly, rather than going, oh my gosh, the child's under the car, oh, you which doesn't help the child at all. So everybody's had those experiences of flow. So imagine if your life became more and more flow without all the extra craziness that the mind creates. If it just became flowing into the situation, responding to the situation, without past and future added into it, or should or shouldn't, or anger at somebody else, whatever we add to it. Just imagine that. So this is a clue as to what the enlightened state is like. We get clues. We have lots of clues from our own practice when we enter a state where there is no suffering. We're still acting, but there's no suffering. And then from various things that the Buddha said and other um, people who are ahead of us on the path to enlightenment have said. So a clue is when, how to extract the mind from the suffering that it adds to simple happenings is to return to the naked experience. The naked experience is ping. The naked experience is, I did this with my body. I arrived back here. I look at the clock. I have nine minutes, seven minutes. That's the naked experience. It's, the ju- it's the, what comes next. Therefore, blah, blah, blah is the problem. So we return to the naked experience, we examine the naked experience, and then we widen the mind. Widen the mind. So even historical context can help. So, uh, you know, having lived long enough and seeing administrations come and go, from conservative to liberal, to middling to conservative to liberal, it, it helps. 
Or if you read books about history, I mean, Hogan reads lots of books about history, it gives you tremendous perspective on this is, this is the human condition, this is the way things happen. And yeah, we're in, maybe we're in a situation now where we're getting a lot of news and around the world of things we don't like, and that makes us unhappy, but this is, this is, this is the way human beings live together. So to step back into that wide perspective and then say, okay, what do we do? The, uh, a man named, what is uh, Locke's first name? No, Locke Kelly, that's his first name, Locke Kelly, came and taught in Portland last year. And he had everybody do uh, an exercise in no problem. What if there are no problems in your life? Just, you just like touch into that for a minute. What if everything you thought was a problem is not a problem? And you just let go of the whole idea of problems. Can you try that for a few minutes? What if there were literally no problems? How would that be? Interesting, huh? What do you think, Janine? I see you kind of looking around. <laughs> well, I think that right now I don't have any problems. Uh huh. In fact, that's not really been part for me. Uh huh. Like, so that was. I'm in a very unusual and very fortunate position. Uh huh. And I don't know how it happens, but it's happened. Uh huh. You could jinx it, yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> what just happened? What just happened? Do you see it? See it? Problem. Problem, right. I'm going to jinx it. It's going to disappear. I want it. I want it. I want to hold on to it. See? <laughs> there we go. Yep, down the road to suffering. <laughs> I'm happy now, but I might not be happy in the future. <laughs> it's so great. It's so funny what we do. So could we, could we just have no problem for a minute? OK, let's try it. No problem for one minute, no problems at all. Just let go of them all. There's not any problems anymore. So imagine widening that. There's things to deal with, right? Practical things to deal with. Cars break down. Yeah. Power goes off. Something got burned in the oven. What are we going to serve? There are things to deal with, of course, because we're human beings, functioning human beings. But if we take the problem away from it, we take the suffering away from it. So there's a one Zen teacher. He's dead now, but he one of his mottos was, this is normal. This is normal. Whatever happens, you just say, this is normal. And it just takes the problem away from it. It says, this is normal. I'm a human being. This is normal. It's really important to study your mind well and to know when you're adding suffering to body sensations or to thoughts. To be able to pull your mind back from those sensations into the present truth. So to pull the mind out of past and out of future where regret, shame, and anxiety reside all of our mental afflictions, emotional afflictions, reside in past and future. And to widen the mind's perspective, 
to return to equanimity, which our practice helps us cultivate, and to loving kindness. So that's why we have this icon of equanimity, as Hogan mentioned this morning. So you look up and say, wow, I would really like to, to have that much equanimity, to see the world and see my own life and other people's lives with that much equanimity and loving kindness, compassion. It doesn't mean passivity. That's the mistake people make about Buddhism. It doesn't mean passivity. It's from the foundation of equanimity and clear seeing and compassion and loving kindness. This is how it is now. I mean, we can't be effective unless we say, this is how it is now. These are the facts. This is how it is now. And then we can decide whether to act or not. We decide to act, when to act, in what context to act. And we increase our chances of acting wisely and compassionately. But we have to know our mind well and know how it leads us into suffering. So please, study your mind and try to catch it in the act of creating suffering. And then say, aha, I caught you again. And then back up. I call it backing up practice. Back out of the suffering and see what's actually going on. Our practice helps us know how to pick our mind up out of suffering and redirect our mind stream to what is wholesome and beneficial. That sounds simple, but it's a fair amount of work to reverse not only the decades of our own life's practice of creating suffering, but generations behind us. But if we do this work for ourselves, it will benefit ourselves and everyone around us. And then that has repercussions far beyond what we can imagine. So please, study your mind and practice well.